You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I'm going to ask you to please take your Bible and once again turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me share with you a frustrating experience that I had earlier last week. I was pulling up to a four-way stop, not too far from my house, and I'll admit that I was only half paying attention to my driving. I wasn't all there. Then I found myself misjudging the distance between myself and the car in front of me. So I had to slam on the brakes as fast as I could in order to avoid an accident. Well, immediately my blood started boiling because obviously I couldn't have been the one at fault. It wasn't my fault. It had to have been theirs, right? I mean, I mean, in my estimation, they were just sitting there and they should have passed through that stop long before I ever got there, before I ever arrived. My periphery vision is still pretty good, folks. I was expecting there not to be a car there and it was their fault that they were still there. So, having lived in Los Angeles for a while before coming here, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking thoughts, godly thoughts, like, do I lay on the horn to wake this person up from their afternoon nap, or do I just sit here and take a nap with them? I mean, what do I do? It's at that moment that I notice another car that happens to be turning at the same stop, and that car is a well-marked black and white police vehicle. Well, that changes everything. Now I know why the car in front of me has decided to take their time and why they've decided to err on the side of caution. Now I'm on my best behavior as well. And my whole attitude has changed. I'm smiling. I'm making sure that my phone is somewhere tucked far out of sight. I don't don't want the policeman to even imagine or, or, or assume that I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. And I only bring that up because... That's typically how we, act, how we act. That's typically how we live our lives, isn't it? I mean, as children, we tend to obey our parents when our parents are around. And as adults, we tend to be more mindful of the law when the law is around, when the policemen are around. Wow. Whew. Yes, we do love the, the law enforcement here at this church. I mean, we behave ourselves particularly around those that we respect, and particularly whenever we know that there will be consequences for our actions, right? We behave ourselves when we're we're painfully aware of the consequences. And likewise, as Christians, it is much easier for us to act a certain way, for us to behave ourselves in a certain manner on Sundays or at church functions, or even if we're around the pastor. Now, I'm sure none of you would ever treat me differently or act differently around me. But sometimes we do that. We act one way someplace, and then we act another way another place. But God has not called us to be part-time Christians. He has called us to be in this fight full-time, to be in it and of it completely. And so he inspired Paul here at the end of Philippians through the agency and superintendence of the Holy Spirit to encourage the Philippians to stay the course and to remain constantly faithful whether Paul was there with them or not. He says, whether I come to see you or not, I want to hear that you're doing well. 
I want to hear that you're staying the course. I want to hear that you're behaving yourself, whether I'm there to keep tabs on you or not. I want to hear that you're living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel that has radically transformed your lives. Last week, we introduced ourselves to this section, and we looked at one verse. We looked at verse 27. This week, we're going to go a little bit farther down the field. We're going to finish out chapter 1. But let's go ahead and begin with verse 27, where Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Before diving into the rest of this passage, I think it would be good for us to remind ourselves of some of the things that we looked at last week, a few of the highlights from last week's introduction in verse 27. We noted that the key to this passage is found in those two little words in the original languages. The first word is that word only that appears at the very beginning of this passage. Grammarians like to call this a marker of limitation, this word only, meaning that Paul is, is setting what he is about to say aside. He's highlighting it, and he's bringing it to the front and center of our attention. He's saying, here's the one essential thing that I want you to do. If you don't do anything else, make sure that you do this. This is so important. Only do this. He's saying, in light of everything that I've written so far, only do this. That is the first word, only. The next Greek word takes six of our English words to get the point across. The next phrase, let your manner of life be, is just one simple word in the Greek. And it's the main, word, it's the main verb of the entire section. It is the imperative, the command, the call to action that we find here in this chapter and in this passage. In fact, it is the first and only command found in chapter 1. Up until now, Paul hasn't required anything of his readers. He's not asked anything of them. I mean, yes, in a way, every verse places demands upon us as we seek to understand and apply the principles of God's truth. But everything leading up to verse 27 is simply a statement of fact. For the first 26 verses, Paul doesn't tell us what to do. He simply says, this is the way that it is. Well, now he changes his tone. And he starts providing action items for us to follow. He goes from, here's the truth, to here's what you need to do. And here's what I'm calling upon you to do. This is what you are required to do. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an option. He is placing a command upon them. And he is saying, this is your marching order, Christian. This is what you need to do. And we see this all throughout the epistles. Doctrine, then duty. Belief, then behavior. And it's always in that order. It's never reversed. I mean, you can try to put the cart before the horse, but it doesn't work. 
And so this first imperative, this command, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is so extremely important. So extremely important. We noted that this second word, this let your manner of life be, literally refers to being a good citizen. It refers to being a, a good citizen within, your, civic, within your, your civil sphere of structure, your community, your city-state. It refers to a citizen's sense of civic pride and duty. It, it, it gives, but it also takes. And the Philippians understood this concept well, considering that they were privileged citizens of Rome, and Philippi was a Roman city-state. So Paul is saying, look, as earthly citizens of Rome... You are expected to behave a certain way. There are expectations that are placed upon you simply because of where you live and who you are. This is very much a part of your identity. This shapes everything about you. I mean, you speak like Romans, you dress like Romans, you do what Romans do, even though Rome itself is over 800 miles away from you. You're still expected to look, act, smell, eat, drink, and behave like a Roman. In the same way, You are unearthly citizens of heaven. And how much more so should that citizenship, with all of its privileges and responsibilities, affect your life? He's saying, be a good citizen. Take your civic duty as one transformed by the power of the gospel seriously. That's what he's saying here. Don't be a bum. Be a contributor to God's society of redeemed sinners. Be one of those who who steps forward, who draws the line, who stands up and courageously advances the gospel forward. I mean, you have been called, rebirthed, and recreated to walk in newness of life and to become like Christ. He's saying, Christian, it's time to act like it. We spent much of our time last week driving that point home because there is a certain behavior that is characteristic of Christ's citizens. The Bible is crystal clear about this, that there are those who live worthy of the gospel and that there are those through unrepentance and there are those who live in patterns of sin and because of that, they live a life that is unworthy of the gospel. And it all comes down to obedience and consistency. Not perfection, but definitely direction and determination. The true Christian will confess and repent of sin, not embrace it. Our manner of life and our identity in Christ is not characterized by sin. Are we sinners? Yes, definitely. Are we going to sin over and over again? Yes, definitely. Are we known for our sin? No. Are we characterized by our sin? No. Are we slaves to our sin? No. No, not at all. Instead, we must be characterized by behavior that is worthy of our king and worthy of our true country. So the question becomes, what does that worthy behavior look like? I mean, we are all aware of the rights and privileges that come along with being citizens of heaven. But what are those responsibilities that accompany living a life worthy of the gospel that is all about Christ and not about us? Well, the rest of the passage provides four responsibilities for the worthy Christian citizen. Four responsibilities. And we looked at the first two last week, where first of all, we are told to stand firm. Stand firm. Look at the middle of verse 27. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. 
worthy Christian citizens stand firm in a single unified front. This is a term that is used to describe the courage of a soldier who refuses to leave his post. And it is the primary point of application as we examined all of the different passages or several of the passages last week that use this phrase, standing firm. We saw that the primary point of application is that standing firm means guarding the truth at all costs. In order to do that, we must first know the truth, obey the truth, and defend the truth. And we can't do it alone. We have to do it together. That's why Paul adds here, in one spirit and in one mind. We must be unified on this front. We are obligated to lock arms, to stand firm for the truth when others try to extinguish it with error. We hold our position shoulder to shoulder in defense of the gospel. That is the first responsibility of a worthy Christian citizen. We stand firm. Number two that we looked at last week was good citizens of the gospel strive together. They strive together. Look at how Paul finishes out verse 27. He writes, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That first phrase, striving side by side, is a striking word in the Greek. It is the word athleo, where we get the term athlete and athletics. The idea is to compete in a contest, not against each other, but together, side by side, to aggressively take the gospel forward. It means loving the truth, sharing the truth, and proclaiming the truth. This word was the same word that was used to describe the games of the gladiators, In the ancient world, your teammates mattered, especially when it came to gladiatorial games. Teamwork mattered. The fact that you were all brought together and you had this common goal, survive, was important. It meant something. It meant a whole lot more than just losing a medal or getting in second or third place. No, you were fighting for your life. We have to remember that when it comes to our struggle, within the faith, as believers. We don't compete against each other. We do engage in this life and death struggle, though, for the truth. And that brings us up to speed with only two duties left for the worthy Christian citizen. So what is the Christian civic duty as a good citizen of heaven? Number three, worthy Christian citizens show courage. Show courage. Look at what Paul says next in verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, don't be afraid. Be courageous. Be strong. Interestingly enough, Paul uses a word here that sometimes gets lost in our English translation. We don't see the uniqueness of it. This is sort of the difference between, you know, reading something in black and white and reading it in color. Because he bypasses the common word for fear here. Instead, he uses a far more vivid word, a far more colorful word, with the intention of striking terror in the Philippians' imagination. This word for frightened, it literally refers to spooked horses who mindlessly run off in a frenzied stampede. Sometimes, it would be used figuratively in ancient Greek and different sources to refer to the chaos of an army after breaking ranks and scattering in retreat. It's a figurative term for animalistic panic. It's self-preserving, self-defeating, and endangering to everyone else. Paul says, when your opponents come against you, don't get spooked like a skittish horse 
or a retreating soldier. Worthy Christian citizens show courage in the face of opposition. So why is this so important? Why is it so important that we show courage in the face of opposition? Well, the scriptures are replete with a variety of reasons. But I think it would be appropriate for us to focus on just a few as they relate to the gospel itself. Because Paul definitely has the gospel in mind as he writes this first chapter of Philippians. In verse 5, he joyfully thanks God for them because of their partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he says, they are partakers with him in the confirmation and defense of the gospel. In verse 12, he says, in a surprise twist, that his chains have actually served to advance the gospel. In verse 16, he says that he was placed under house arrest for the defense of the gospel. And even at the start of this passage, he mentions the gospel twice in verse 27. The gospel is on Paul's mind. And he's not mentioning the gospel all the time, but whenever he isn't here in chapter 1, when he's not mentioning it directly, guess what he is mentioning? He's mentioning Christ, who is the gospel, the object of the gospel itself. So while Paul's circumstances are bad, his lifeline all through chapter 1 here is the gospel. And it is appropriate for us to remind ourselves of a few very important aspects of the gospel as it relates to our disposition, as it relates to our attitude, particularly in the face of trial in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution and opposition. So let's go ahead and look at a few of those. First of all, the gospel that we have is a fearless gospel. It is a fearless gospel. Listen, there is nothing more honest than pure truth. And the gospel apologizes to no man for being right while everyone else is wrong. It doesn't apologize, folks. It is a fearless, bold, rash, in-your-face sort of gospel. We live in a society that is so polite, so tolerant, and so accepting of every worldview except one. Honestly, you can believe anything that you want, so long as it isn't true. I mean, that's where we are, folks. You can believe anything that you want. You just can't believe the truth. That's not allowed. So long as you are not dogmatic about heaven and hell, so long as you are not straightforward and clear and fearless about the gospel, then you can be accepted with pretty much any far out there wild and even violent belief that you might have. If we aren't convinced, if we aren't sold out and committed to this truth, we risk misrepresenting God's gospel. And we have to realize that this gospel bows to no one. This gospel surrenders no ground in any conversation. And what right do we have as bearers of this gospel, as citizens of this gospel? If we're going to live worthy of it, what right do we have to not accurately represent this fearless gospel? Friends, the gospel is not popular, but it is powerful. And to live a life worthy of the gospel means presenting the gospel fearlessly. No murmuring, no embarrassment, no compromise, and certainly no apologizing. Charles Spurgeon, one of the boldest, most outspoken forces for the gospel in the 19th century. I love that man. I cannot wait to meet him someday. Listen to this. This is what he had to say. It strikes me that a living 
which becomes the gospel of Christ, is always a bold and fearless kind of living. Some people go crawling throughout the world as if they ask some great man's leave to live. They do not know their own minds. They take their words out of their mouths, they look at them, and they ask a friend or two's opinion. They say, what do you think of these words? And when these friends censor them, they put them in again and will not say them. Like jellyfish, they have no backbone. Now God has made man upright, and it is a noble thing for a man to stand erect on his own feet. And it is a nobler thing still for a man to say that in Christ Jesus he has received that freedom, which is freedom indeed, and therefore he will not be the slave of any man. He goes on to say, quit yourselves like men. Be strong, fear not, for only so will your conversation be such as becomes the gospel of Christ. End quote. Church, the gospel is fearless in what it has to say. And as those who are citizens of the gospel, we must reflect that. We must be bold and fearless in our convictions as well. Additionally, our gospel is a unifying gospel. It's a unifying gospel. It brings an eclectic bunch of misfits like us together, doesn't it? It brings us together under a common flag, a common banner with a common goal. It wields us together. And it creates us as one in Christ. Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28. Many of you know it well. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now as a result of that, having put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says the things that divide us simply do not exist in Christ. They don't exist. And he mentions the very things there in that text that divide us the most. Race, rank, and sex. But these dividing walls are non-existent in the family of God because we are all one in Christ. Paul made another similar statement in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. There he wrote, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, our union with Christ establishes our communion with each other. Because in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a second-class citizen. In fact, let's go ahead and flip over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Just one book over to the left. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 for me is what it is for so many of you. It's this mountaintop chapter and a tremendous gift to the church. And we keep coming back to the first 10 verses because they speak to our salvation. But that's not to say that the last half is any less important. Some of you might not even know there's a verse 11. But there is. Ephesians 2, verse 11. He goes into this beautiful, beautiful, just unpacking of God's truth and what has happened now since the cross and since we have been saved since we have been brought into this precious fellowship of the church look at what he says there he says therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought, brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, you realize that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has done this, that has taken those of us who were far off and has brought us near, that has broken down this this very real dividing wall that existed between us. It is the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost, It is this gospel that reconciles us both to God and to each other. For those of the household of faith, the gospel that we have is a unifying gospel. It brings us together. It takes all divisions that we have, both real and artificial, and it destroys them, making us one in Christ. But on the flip side, as much as we love and cherish this truth, we cannot forget that particularly when it comes to the world, this gospel, as much as we love it, as much as we embrace it and hold it close to our hearts, as much as for us this is the power of God unto salvation, for the rest of the world we have to remember that this gospel is also an offensive gospel. It's an offensive gospel. The good news that if you repent and believe in Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, that if you do that, you will be saved. It is only good news for those who repent and believe. It's exclusive. The gospel doesn't pretend that you can reject Jesus, find another path, and still make your way to eternal life. No, the gospel begins with acknowledging the fact that we are all great sinners in need of a great Savior that all have sinned, and that the wages of sin is death, that everyone in this room, myself included, deserves hell, as much as we like to think of highly of ourselves. The fact of the matter is nobody here deserves heaven, not one person. I couldn't find the quote in time this morning. I can't even remember exactly who it's from. I think it was either John Owen or Charles Spurgeon. It was one of those guys. So I apologize for not coming into the pulpit with all the facts this morning, okay? But just know that somewhere, someone, a sweet little old lady approached a godly man and made a comment like, I just don't understand how God could hate Esau. I mean, that that just seems so unloving, so unkind, so unlike my God. To which that man then replied, my dear woman, I don't understand how God could possibly love Jacob. 
I mean, really. One of those individuals has a very godly perspective of mankind. The fact that we don't deserve the grace that we have been given. The fact that if we deserve anything, we deserve hell. That first part of Ephesians 2 is true when it says that we were all once dead in our sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of darkness, living out the passions of the flesh. And like the rest of mankind, we were children of wrath. Wrath from who? Wrath from God. God in his infinite holiness, his perfection, could not stand our sin could not stand our offense against him. Who are we, mere creatures of the dirt, to defy God, to go against him, even in the smallest way? Who do we think we are? People don't like to be reminded that they're sinners, that they're guilty of cosmic treason, and that sin carries a severe consequence, that there is death for this. Not because of the sin itself even, Not even because of the weight and severity of the offense and how it affects us, but because who the sin is against. The Puritans, they understood this. They understood it well. They write about it often, about how so much of our sin is so ugly and so worthy of infinite hell and infinite punishment because it has been committed against an infinitely perfect and holy God. It is because of who we have committed our sin against that makes our sin so bad. He is holy, unchanging, perfect, infinitely righteous, and he is the sinless creator God. And yet it is this God who is entirely in the right to condemn us all. This God is the one who has sent his innocent son to stand in the place of the guilty. So not only are you a sinner, my friend, but there's nothing that you can do about it. Absolutely nothing that you can do about it. Nothing to save yourself. Christ has already done everything. And by suffering the wrath of God that you deserve in your place on the cross, it is completely finished, but only for those who have placed their faith in that sacrifice. Friends, the gospel flies in the face of the human spirit, self-love and self-esteem. It is offensive in the eyes of the world. And I'll go a step further and say it's not only offensive, it is hateful. Hateful. Because the great world religion is self-love. In their estimation, sin against me is the only evil, and sin against God is only fiction. Mankind is basically good. We are all good people, so long as we stay out of jail and we champion a few causes. That's the prevalent mindset in the world today, and that leads us to this last aspect of the gospel, at least for this morning. I mean, we could go on and on, I'm sure. But this last aspect of the gospel that should give us courage in the face of opposition And that is that the gospel that we have is a necessary gospel. It's a necessary gospel. No man can save himself. Many have tried. All have failed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the narrow gate. I am the only way to the Father and the kingdom of heaven. The only way to get there is through me. You can try to find a back door, but you're not going to find one. There's only one way there, and that is through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, tells us that there is only one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. Acts 4.12 declares us that salvation is found in no one else. The uniqueness, the exclusivity of the gospel demands that we share it with everyone because it is necessary for salvation. 
It is necessary. There are seven billion people on this planet, and only those who hear and believe the message of Christ will be saved. Think about that for a minute. Friends, when the world hates you, when your gospel offends them, what right do we have to panic? I mean, don't panic. Don't be frightened like a skittish horse. As easy as it is to implode, to start feeling self-conscious, to start giving excuses and apologies for the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't do it. I mean, the gospel of Christ is fearless, it's unifying, it's offensive, but it's also necessary. I mean, like it or not, folks need to hear it from those who really believe it and won't back down or be ashamed of it. To quote Spurgeon once again, he said, Oh, my brethren, bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. That's good. I don't know about you, but I would rather be a bold-hearted and misunderstood man than a sensitive coward. That's the third duty or responsibility of a worthy Christian citizen. Those worthy of the gospel will stand firm, strive together, show courage, and then finally suffer well. Suffer well. Look at verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's right, Christian. It has been granted to you for you to suffer for being a Christian. No amens. Not one. Didn't expect one. Thank you. (laughs) Expect lots of suffering in your near future. Let's break this down. When he says, for it has been granted to you, that word granted, it comes from the same root word where we get our English word grace. It comes from charis. He's saying that this is a divine gift, that God has given you this unmerited, undeserved present, and you're welcome. Now, there are two gifts mentioned here. The first is salvation, and the second is suffering. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Now, that's the first gift. In order to believe in Christ, God must first grant you the belief as a gift. Listen, we do have free will. I know some of you probably are shocked to hear me say that. We do have free will. We have all the right and all the will in the world to make the wrong choice. We certainly do. We are, are free to choose hell, but we are not free to choose heaven. We are not free in and of ourselves to choose God apart from God. Before the Spirit of God grants us a new birth, we are dead as doornails in our sin and in our trespasses. We possess as much ability to choose God as a dead man has the ability to choose something off the dollar menu at McDonald's. That's how much ability we have. Unless God regenerates the soul and breathes life into your spiritual corpse, you will not and you cannot choose him. Again, this truth is found all over the Bible. We've already been in Ephesians 2. We could back up a little bit and certainly unpack it there. But let's just go ahead and flip over to the book of Acts for a minute. Book of Acts, chapter 11. We're not going to spend too much time on this. We've certainly spent a lot of time on it in the past in other messages. I would encourage you, if you are interested in unpacking this further, there is a particular lengthy message online for... Philippians 1.6, and if you have trouble sleeping at night, I encourage you to check that one out as we spend a lot of time unpacking this truth. 
Book of Acts, chapter 11. And look at verse 18. Dr. Luke says, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What a profound statement. Notice that God not only grants us eternal life, he grants us the faith and repentance that leads to eternal life. And this is all given to us by God. Look at Acts 13, just two chapters later. Acts chapter uh, chapter 13, in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Appointed by whom? Appointed by the apostles? No. Appointed by their friends? Appointed by the world? No, appointed by God. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed. They were the ones who believed. Not everyone believed. Only those whom God had set aside, had appointed for belief. Once again, God is the initiator of salvation from beginning to end. And there are so many places that we could go, but we won't for the sake of time. I mean, after all, our focus this morning is more on the second divine gift, this gift of suffering. It's not just any suffering, by the way. It's suffering for the sake of Christ. Persecution. When you suffer for a bonehead decision that you might have made at work, that's not persecution, friends. That's not the same. Okay? That's just suffering the consequences for sin or a bad decision. But no, what he's talking about here specifically is suffering for Christ's namesake. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, when we hear that word, persecution, more often than not, our our tendency is to think of missionaries or parts of the world where Christianity is illegal. But persecution is not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. In fact, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes persecution manifests itself in ridicule, in violence, in slander, in intimidation, threats, accusations. In fact, most forms of persecution that are found and listed in the Bible are actually verbal and nonviolent. The majority of the ones that we find throughout Scripture. Even Jesus himself says as much in Matthew 5. Let's go ahead and turn there real quick. Matthew 5. Many of you are familiar with Matthew 5 as he introduces his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Look at what he says there, starting in verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so, or in this manner, or in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, rejoice, be glad when your reputation is ruined, when your good name is dragged through the mud, when you suffer ridicule for my name's sake. Consider it a blessing because you have a greater reward awaiting you in heaven, and you're also in good company. But when persecution comes, it doesn't feel like much of a blessing, does it? I mean, whether we want to admit it or not, Christmas is right around the corner. Anyone here get the Hallmark Channel? I don't, I'm I'm happy to say, but my parents do. And when I went over to their house the other day, I couldn't help but notice that Hallmark is already playing Christmas movies 24-7 around the clock. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. (laughs) 
Christmas season is here. It's here, folks. And I know that makes some of you groan. On the other hand, since we're all, since we're, we're, it's confession time, my Christmas tree is up. Now before, now before you throw stones or kick me out of the church, I want to remind you that Thanksgiving comes on November 28th this year. That means that if we wait until after Thanksgiving, we will have less than a month of the Christmas season. Now, I know you all love Jesus, right? I just can't, I just can't do it, folks. We had, to, we had to set it up a little bit early this year because I'm not, I'm not about to shorten the Christmas season to three weeks and a few days. So it's here, whether we like it or not. And, I'm, and I would bet that most of us, if not all of us, every year receive at least one gift that we don't care for. Is that a safe assumption? You know, you know that, that gift that you leave the tags on and you pray that it came from a store with an amazing return policy. Let's be honest. If persecution is really a gift from God, we might be tempted to leave the tags on. We might be tempted to say, you know what? Thanks for the socks, Lord. But I really don't need this right now. Because persecution is painful, and we don't look at it the right way. We don't look at it from a biblical perspective. We all love the gift of salvation, but no one wants the gift of suffering that comes with it. So what is the right way to look at suffering for Christ's sake? To help us out, Paul provides here at the very end three truths about persecution. Three truths about persecution at the very end of chapter one. First of all, he says that persecution is proof of your salvation. It's proof of your salvation. To see this, we need to back up just a little bit into verse 28. Remember, he says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. So when persecution comes, when you find yourself in a battle, when you, have, when, when you are there on the field face to face with your opponent, don't be frightened in anything. Because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Once again, he affirms that your salvation comes from God. And this is a clear sign, this clear sign that is sometimes translated token or omen or sign or proof. This word means evidence. The Christian's courage and resilience in the face of opposition proves whose side they are really on. So when others oppose us, when they oppose what we believe, it proves which side we are on and which side they are on. It tells us where we are headed and where they are headed. In the same way, it gives us assurance of salvation because God has promised to deliver those who are persecuted for his namesake. This is proof, proof that you are truly saved. Earlier in the service, we read from 2 Thessalonians, and I know that your fingers are getting a workout this morning, but let's go ahead and turn there to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, to revisit this passage just one more time with this evidence in mind that we have just read here in Philippians 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. We won't read all of it this morning, but just part of it here. Starting in verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence, this is proof of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What a passage. He says a day is coming when God will flip the narrative and repay everyone who afflicts with affliction. The Lord Jesus himself will distribute revenge on behalf of everyone who has been hurt, who has been reviled, who has been maligned, who has been persecuted for the cause of Christ, for his namesake. And he will distribute revenge on everyone who either doesn't know God or does know God but doesn't obey the gospel. Again, the gospel is that free gift, but it makes demands. It carries responsibilities. It costs everything, and it demands obedience. Second Thessalonians speaks of glorified saints and afflicted afflictors. This is the contrast that is created by a faithful Christian citizen who shows courage in the face of opposition. It proves who will be destroyed and who will be delivered. James Montgomery Boyce writes, It is not possible for a Christian to stand firm under persecution and for the world to dismiss it as nothing. It is evidence of a supernatural power. We just looked at Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, just a few minutes ago. Just one verse before that, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want proof? You want assurance of salvation? You want to know if you're really in the kingdom or not? All it takes is just a little bit of suffering for Christ to make that clear. It will prove which side you are on. Paul's second truth about persecution is one that we have already looked at. Persecution is proof of your salvation. It is also provided from the Lord. Provided from the Lord. Verse 29 makes that abundantly clear. When you are ridiculed for Christ, slandered for Christ, hated for Christ, mistreated for Christ, God is keeping score, and he will reward your quiet courage. And his reward is imperishable, it's eternal, it's indestructible. The world doesn't get it. They don't understand this, because all they see is today. All they have to live for is today. It's this life and the best that this life has to offer. But God has promised so much more for those who love him. And then finally in verse 30, we see that persecution is prevalent in the church. Prevalent in the church. Paul says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He says, you saw what I went through when I was with you back in Acts 16. How I was humiliated, mobbed, dragged through town, stripped naked, beaten with rods, thrown into the inner prison and stretched out as far as my limbs could go in stocks. And now here I am under house arrest in Rome, waiting for a final hearing with Caesar, wondering if I'm going to live or die. And yet, in spite of all of that, he says, I will rejoice. And this suffering is a gift from God. It's a gift. Guess what, Philippians? It's coming for you. It's coming for you too. Perhaps not to the same extreme, but it is coming. Church, you have heard me quote it before. 
so often from this pulpit. What is no one's life verse ever? It's 2 Timothy 3.12. You will never find it stitched on a pillow at Hobby Lobby, I promise you. No one loves this verse, pins it next to their mirror as they brush their teeth in the morning, and just meditates on its rich truth and gospel goodness for them. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Not some, but all. Not might, but will. Will be persecuted. If someone told you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, they probably left that part out. That you will suffer for his namesake. And yet that's par for the course. It should be no surprise to see Paul conclude this section on a note of suffering well. Because worthy citizens of the gospel who stand firm, strive together and show courage will inevitably suffer. You don't have to sell everything, go where the gospel is illegal to enjoy this gift of suffering. All you have to do is be a true believer here and now and see how long your popularity lasts. Persecution is the natural result of our confession, folks. It will happen, and it does happen when we are faithful. It is a gift of grace. It is God's gift to us because it is proof of your salvation. It is provided from the Lord, and it is prevalent in the church. What a gift. Think about it in that way. Think about it in those terms. I mean, do you really believe that you are who God says you are? Are you really one of his children? Have you been adopted into the family of God? If so, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because they hate you because they hate him. They hated him so much. They killed him. They crucified him. They did everything they could to him, and they can't touch him anymore. But they can touch you. And they will do everything they can in their power to touch their Savior, through you. But they can't. They can't. And all it does is prove which side we're on. It just proves that you belong to the Lord. It proves it. So rejoice and give God thanks for that. Because the world loves its own, but they hate those that belong to Christ. Well, one commentator writes, American Christians on the whole are such wimps. Surprisingly, this is not Spurgeon. We whimper over inconveniences and complain when we are slightly disrespected, forgetting that our brothers and sisters throughout history and across the globe, even today, experience far greater suffering for the faith on an ongoing basis. Church, I hope that this fellowship, our partnership as First Baptist Church, when tested, proves to be made of sterner stuff. I mean, we are heaven's citizens. Let's act like it. We don't go looking for a fight. We don't needlessly offend people. But there will be a price to pay for living a life worthy of the gospel. This is not easy news, but it's good news. And one day, I promise you, it will all be worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you as those who need courage as those who need a proper perspective. Lord, we know that you are a good father, a loving father who only gives good gifts to your children. You don't hate us. You aren't mean towards us. You aren't 
You aren't masochistic or vindictive or, or violent in any way towards your children, Lord. We know that that is true. And yet, you give us this gift, this gift of suffering that proves to us and the world who we are and where we're going and who they are and where they're going. Lord, you have given us this tremendous gospel, this fearless gospel, this unifying gospel, this offensive gospel and this necessary gospel. Lord, you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness found here in this book, in this truth that you have inspired and that you have passed down this faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints. Lord, we thank you for that. We give you praise and we give you glory for your wisdom and your love and your care for us. Now, Lord, I pray that we would have a proper perspective when it comes to suffering for your name's sake. Lord, I pray that we would count it a privilege to suffer for you, that we would be so firm, so rooted and grounded in our beliefs, in our convictions about who you are and who you have called us to be, that we would live our lives as worthy citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that for every single person of this church. Lord, impact every heart, every life, every mind. Remind us as we leave here today, as we go throughout our week, remind us, Lord, of our citizenship in heaven. Remind us of our calling, of our position in you, Lord, we may not be there. We may be more than 800 miles away from heaven, physically. But Lord, spiritually, even now, we belong to your kingdom. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for all the rights and responsibilities that come with that. I pray that we would live worthy of it. Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, bring us back to your word time and time again. Show us marvelous wonders from your word as we study it, as we examine it, as we share it with others. And Lord, when we meet opposition, I pray that we would have courage, that we would not be like skittish horses or a retreating army, but that we would stand firm, stand together and strive together in one body with one heart and one mind. God, I pray these things for this church. And again, we commit all of these things to you and into your precious and holy name. We commit ourselves, amen.